Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm Sandra Brown. I'm a board-certified licensed genetic counselor and the regional genetics manager for Providence Orange County. Joining me today is Carol Coe, also a board-certified licensed genetic counselor and our regional genetic counselor supervisor. Today, we are discussing the future of genetics and clinical care and what that means for you. This is the last of our four-part series that we have been bringing to you on genetics and the genetics programs at Providence. So let's get started. Hi, Carol. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you today. Yeah, I'm excited that we get to speak today on the future of genetics. Absolutely. So I know our audience is listening to Talk with a Doc, but genetic counselors are not physicians. So let's clarify. What is a genetic counselor? So I see patients who have a personal or family history of a specific condition here um, at our region, we focus on cancer and heart disease in adults, but genetic counselors will are very valued members of the healthcare team. And our role is to, you know, take very complex genetic information and distill it down so we can make it useful for patients and other members of our provider team and really collaborate with each other on how do we incorporate genetic information into understanding this person's uh, personal history or family history. And we have a big uh, role towards using that information for prevention or treatment. I think it's really important that people understand that genetic counselors are part of their healthcare team, mm-hmm. particularly Absolutely. when they have risk, um, risk to develop a disease, and they really want to understand more about what does their family history mean, um, what can their genetic test results tell them. Um, also to understand that genetic counselors um, typically have an undergraduate degree in um, the health sciences, molecular biology, um, biochemistry, and always have a a master's degree mm-hmm. in clinical genetics, genetic counseling, um, and that we are a um, the top of our profession. So there is not a PhD in our profes- profession that the master's degree genetic counselors are the experts of their profession and really part of, an, you know, an important um, aspect of access to genetics in, in healthcare. Right, definitely. And Providence and Southern California are really special to me because I actually started in the genetics department as a volunteer like years and years ago. Um, And that's where, so I had always had an interest in genetics, but I knew I didn't want to necessarily be stuck in a lab, like pipetting, doing stuff with, you know, reagents and gels and things. I liked talking to people. So uh, I got connected to the department here and then I started volunteering with you, Sandy. I'm sure you remember all those years ago uh, when I was a little baby, soon to be genetic counselor. Um, And I grew up in Orange County. This is my home, my community. I went to UCLA for undergrad and then 
got into genetic counseling master's program, it's quite competitive. And, and I think the uh, big kudos to, to my experiences as an intern here at, at St. Joseph's that really gave me the tools I needed to, to succeed in that program. So I somehow decided I could survive two winters in Michigan, being a SoCal girl my whole life. So I went to University of Michigan uh, and had a wonderful experience there. That's really where my interest in cardiology genetics started as well. And I was able to bring that back to Providence St. Joseph in Orange County and uh, be very, very involved. It was very meaningful to, you know, start working at the place that had really um, seeded this interest to begin with. And it's just such a, a rewarding full circle to be able to serve my community again. So I am currently a cancer and cardiovascular genetic counselor. I started the cardiovascular genetics program here because Sandy and thanks to you for being so supportive in that program. And um, it's it's been such a meaningful five years. Yeah, of course, I remember you as one of our <laughs> interns. And I think that's an important aspect of what we do, um, that we do have an internship program. We do also train graduate level genetic counselors and um, oftentimes are um, hiring new genetic counselors out of school in mm -hmm. order to join our team. And we get a good glimpse um, of their expertise and excellence <laughs> when they are part of our internship program. And yeah. if any of our listeners have um, young people in their families that are interested in science and healthcare, uh, genetics and genetic counseling is a, a really wonderful and rewarding field to be a part of. Absolutely. And speaking of the future of genetics, you know, I, I think this is um, genetics is always going to be a growing field, and it's great to have such a an open program to be able to you know, really foster that growth and the, the future of the profession in that way. Yeah, so, I think over the past few years, um, the kinds of changes that I've seen, you know, really show that the future of genetics is bright and will continue to grow rapidly is an important part of, um, you know, the understanding and the delivery of excellent personalized treatment to our patients. Um, when I was um, in high school in the late 70s and early 80s, I remember what we mostly understood about genetics was chromosomes, like just mm -hmm. looking at large microscopic photographs of chromosomes. Right. Um, and, and that was all we really had to go on at that point. And I was still super intrigued by it. And then being able to see cloning, I remember Dolly the sheep was the mm -hmm. first yeah. um, animal that was cloned when I was in high school. Or maybe I had graduated from high school by then. Um, and the BRCA genes first discovered um, in 1994 and 95. So I, I think most people don't realize that genetics itself is a relatively new modern profession that right. really doesn't have a long history of being able to deliver really important information to patients about their their genes and what their genes may tell us about their um, disease risks. Um, I remember um, 
the human genome was first sequenced. Um, that was in 2003. So only 20 years ago. And at that point, the human genome really represented not one single person, but along the course of the genome, which of course is our repository of human information, mm -hmm. and it's filled with all of our genes, that um, that first human genome, even though there's different people, um, it is really just individual people providing the information um, that allowed us to say for the very first time that we could sequence the human genome. Whereas today we can sequence the genome in a few hours with the technology that we have. Um, and we're constantly looking at um, large panels of genes, um, multiple genes at once. Whereas only a few years ago, maybe only about five, seven years ago, we would only look at a handful of genes when we suspected that somebody had um, genetic risk. Right. Uh, when I first started in genetics, mostly it was for prenatal risk and pediatric disorders. Um, and then um, there was just this huge growth in the ability for us to understand more and more about cancer and about um, the risk of developing cancer. And then also how to manage that cancer risk, um, how to prevent cancer, how high, is, how high is the risk, really to give people more and more information that was accurate about what we could really know when we looked at their um, genetic risk or when we uh, sequenced their genes that we had identified that were associated with cancer risk. Um, and now, you know, we're looking at things like analyzing the tumor, being able to mm -hmm. look at the genes within a tumor and understand what's driving that cancer to progress. Um, and even looking um, it in your uh, blood, so taking a blood test and looking to see if we can't find small bits of that tumor that are floating around in the blood and learn more about the tumor just from a blood draw. Right. So I think the, the growth, especially in the cancer realm of genetics, has just exploded over the, the past few years. And just to orient everybody, when you say genome versus genes or chromosomes and DNA, can you kind of walk us through, like, what did we used to be able to look at and what was that scope versus what are we able to look at now? Yeah, I mean, originally when I was in school, you would um, look at the chromosomes and the chromosomes are just the structures that genes basically sit on. And you can see them with a microscopic um, uh, photograph. And then you can look at their structure and see if there are any structural problems. But you can't read genes that way because the genes are tucked within the chromosomes and the genes are much, much smaller. So you can't really see a gene by using a microscope. You actually, in order to see a gene, you actually have to be able to read the gene. And reading a gene is a matter of using a biochemical method of looking at the sequence of that gene. So being able to read it almost like reading a book and recognizing that a gene is telling you a story about the job that it's meant to do. And it's, um, it's a, a really an incredible process to be able to read a gene and identify where that gene potentially has an error, like a typographical error that you might find if you were reading um, a page in a book. If you see a typo, then that might alter your understanding of what the author was trying to tell you. In this case, when we read genes and we see something like a typo, we, ident we can identify that as a mutation 
or as a variation within the gene that would disrupt its function or change its meaning. So if that gene is meant to do a job, and most genes, the job they do is they build a specific protein, and then that protein has a function in the body, in the cell, to do some work to help you, in the case of cancer genes, to reduce the risk of developing cancer, to protect the cell, to make sure that that cell is behaving normally, especially as we go through aging, and aging can increase the risk of developing cancer, we really rely on these genes to make sure that our cells are held into check um, so that they don't become a cancer or that the genes are kept um, as normal and healthy as they can be because the function of these proteins is to um, provide that service to our cells. So when we look and we see typographical errors within a gene, what we know is that that protein may not be doing the job it's supposed to do. And that cell may not have as much um, protection um, or restriction on it from developing a cancer. And then that um, may increase the likelihood of developing cancer. Right. Did that help answer your question? Yeah, the, the way I like to think about it is uh, if like 30 years ago, all we knew was that our genes were on this bookshelf um, that, you know, we knew there were 23 different volumes of books and, and you know, people know we get, we have 46 chromosomes, we get half from mom, half from dad, uh, but all we could see were these 46 books on a shelf. And then we knew that there were words and things on the pages inside the book, but it was really, really hard to read them in right. the past. And it was very time consuming and took a lot of effort. Whereas now we can read all 46 volumes of that book and know all of the words in like a matter of days. Whereas before it took years and years and years to even get the full, like human genome. So when we talk about human genome, we're talking about knowing what all of the genes in, in all of those chromosome volumes look like. And, you know, it the, no, these genes don't only cover cancer. Uh, we have genes for every, a lot of different things that are really everything in our body, right? So like our hair color, our eye color, and our under level of understanding of how these different genes or words impact us as a human or as a person, um, there's different levels of that understanding. So in cancer, I think the the growth has exploded so quickly. And similarly, I used to say that cardiogenetics um, was still a developing field. We we're still learning quite a bit about how these genes uh, related to heart disease. Uh, and so I used to say it's like about five, 10 years behind cancer, our understanding of cancer genetics. And that's not necessarily true anymore. Just the acceleration of, of how we understand and use this data has has just been so dramatic. It's been really, really cool to see and, and be in, in this field to, to see all of that growth. But that kind of growth isn't necessarily the same across all disease types, right? So we also have neurogenetics looking at uh, more adult onset conditions like Alzheimer's or dementia or ALS. And, and we do understand some of those genes, um, but there's still 
a lot that we are discovering, a lot that we don't know. And then similarly, like when pharmacogenetics came out, so um, this is talking about everybody has certain genetic markers that might tell us if they react better or worse to this drug versus that drug. Mm -hmm. And pharmacogenetics has been around for years and and I've really been waiting for it to, to hit its stride and hit its moment and really being incorporated every day into medical care and and we're still kind of waiting for that we we can do it it's just it's it's not as prime time i really like your illustration i I imagine over the course of history and maybe we should be calling this part of our series the history of genetics (laughs) but i think it's good in order to understand the future of genetics it's important for us to understand where we've been and and what kind of limitations we are still dealing with exactly and how we will get past them and how we know we will get past them, right? Because right. I really like your illustration. If you imagine that the chromosomes are these shelves and the genes are all of these books on the shelves or something like that, and you imagine that at some point we didn't even know that all these shelves that have all this information, all the instructions for being human, for developing as a fetus, for creating mm-hmm. eyes and ears, for determining things like your appearance and your height and how you look like your family members, and also things like diseases that you may be more at risk of developing as you grow older. If you imagine we didn't even know those existed, and right. then we started to see, oh, there's shelves over there. There's information on them. Mm -hmm. And if there's some kind of, you know, if the shelves are broken at all, then we know that that's going to increase risk for some kind of uh, pediatric disorder. Um, And then we see, oh, there's books. And then if we open the books, we realize maybe we can start reading these books and understand about more about our um, the information in there, which is our genes, and then realize the genes are making these proteins and that's Mm -hmm. what's doing the work. And then realize that some of these books are still quite difficult to read and recognize that some of the pages are still kind of glued together difficult (laughs) to understand yeah you know so I think what what really gives me hope for the future is that we're already inside this library Mm -hmm. we're deep inside this library and we know how to read it and understand it interpret it better and better and better every year um, and, and every year it's faster how much we understand, how much we get mm-hmm. to know, and how we get to loosen up some of those pages and read more and then understand the consequences of any human variations. Um, they could not really even be considered mutations. We really consider mutations, human variations that, you know, really cause the loss of function or a disruption of function of a gene or a protein but you can have all kinds of variation within the human genome that just change some of the risks that you have, but don't necessarily cause the complete disruption of the function of a gene or its protein. Right, yeah, and all of this started in research. So there, I think there's there's always so much research on on genetics because it really has shown to be the core of, of understanding who we are and, and how do we understand human disease. And, and then once we understand it, how do we come up with treatments for things like that? Exactly. I think it's important to say that um, 
the future of genetics is completely dependent on the research that is ongoing um, in our field. We, we um, have to keep up with a lot of uh, publication because our field is constantly being informed by ongoing research. I think one of the most important areas, and I think we discussed this more in one of our other um, podcasts in this series, is making sure that the human genome um, that we use is actually representative of all um, ethnic backgrounds and that we really understand all the human variations that can provide us information and insight about disease risk and management. Um, there's also um, all of the variants that we've been talking about. I guess, I guess when we describe variation, um, we know that every gene, every human has every gene that every other human has and that these genes are basically, um, they can be, you know, relatively long. What's a good long gene, like 10,000 words long or something like that? Uh, that's a pretty long gene. Um, but as 10,000 words long, you can see there's, there's bound to be variation within the genes and that we need to understand the variation better. And so that's an area that research is really looking at, being able to interpret um, all the possible variation within a single gene. And then also, how do genes interact with each other? Um, how do they potentially upregulate or downregulate each other? How do their proteins interact with each other? And if there's a variation within a gene, how does the variation within that kind of subsequent protein that that gene makes, how does the variation within the protein vary its ability to do its work? Um, is, is it, um, you know, is it a little bit more stubborn at doing its work? And so it causes a little bit of a, a gain of function. Is it a little bit less stubborn? Um, is it a little bit slack in doing its job? Mm -hmm. So it causes a slight loss of function. We really need to know not only these, um, the variations, but how these variations impact in a whole, um, what I consider like a concert, like a whole concert and all of the instruments within the orchestra are different proteins that really need to interact together and work together in order to um, have that specific function or like that piece of music really play well and be successful at doing its job. Right. So um, when, we, when we're talking about um, research, I think um, one of the things I guess we could talk about is the role that technology plays in research. Absolutely. And I, I think technology and genetics really go hand in hand. And it is our ability to use technology to understand the genome and genetics that has really accelerated the growth of both of those things together. So um, I think that has really impacted how accessible genetics has become to the everyday person, right? Instead of being stuck in, uh, you know, really high level tertiary centers that, you know, maybe takes years and years and years for people to get to somebody who knows genetics and maybe has a research project open to to get genetic testing it's a lot more accessible these days and it's become a, a lot more of a kitchen table topic right the 
the cost of testing used to be thousands and thousands of dollars, and that's really not the case anymore. These days, if a person walks in, I can usually get them genetic testing for most people around $100. We, we say there's a lot of labs these days that are you can pay $250 and, and just get a test. And I think it's important to distinguish that, you know, the couple hundred dollars you would pay for a test that we would order is clinical grade testing that people use for their healthcare uh, versus other forms of um, direct to consumer testing that you kind of just order online and do yourself yourself kind of right. just for fun for ancestry information um, that's not necessarily going to give you the same amount of information um, as a healthcare clinical grade test would even though you're paying about the same and we have another podcast that that goes through that in more detail some common like myths and um debunks some some things about genetics. When you think about technology, though, the ability to sequence um, faster and faster, so being able to sequence a whole large panel of genes or um, the whole genome of an individual or at least specific markers, like hundreds or thousands of specific markers in a patient or in an individual, um, it was that technology, the advancement of that technology that lowered the price for genetic Mm -hmm. testing. And it was also the research of identifying all these new genes and understanding how um, the uh, providing genetic testing at a, at a clinical level would, um, you know, help us to care for our patients, help them to understand their risks, help us to provide preventive strategies and risk mm-hmm. reduction strategies. So the technology has really played a key role, um, not only in the delivery of um, uh the uh, clinical-based genetic testing, but it also kind of spurred this whole industry of direct-to-consumer testing. Um, And the direct-to-consumer testing, although it was just really based on kind of like on fun and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just doing some scientific uh, exercise that really can't be given um, clinical uh, weight to it. But that itself is what made genetic testing more of a kitchen table topic, where people became more and more um, informed, more and more comfortable talking about genetics, talking about inherited risks, and having that just be kind of a normal everyday conversation. And at the same time, um, the uh, standard criteria um, that we use to determine whether or not a patient meets criteria to do genetic testing, really whether or not it would benefit them to have genetic testing, has also been expanding and expanding at the same time. So we've kind of in this place where um, the technology and um, the people in our communities, um, their ability to um, feel comfortable um, doing genetic testing and at the same time have insurance coverage for clinical-based t- testing has all happened at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think technology has really helped make that more accessible, um, even not only in genetics, but overall empowering the individual to know about their health and their health care. Like uh, people walk around all the time now with smartwatches on their phone that that take their heartbeat. So in, in cardiology genetics, that's also really cool to see all these devices that um, you know, we wouldn't have dreamed of 20 years ago existing that are 
it really is like living in in the future living in a sci-fi world but that that's just reality and it's so cool that we can leverage um, these tools to help us learn more and more so something else i also see is is like you know decades ago the issue was how do we get this data how do we sequence these genes how do we get that information and now that we can we have so much data the problem has evolved into okay we have all this data how do we interpret it what do we do with this data right and and each uh we have twenty three thousand genes in a person so that's a lot of data if we're walking around sequencing like millions and millions of people so I view my role as in genetic counselors in general as, as people who our role is to clinically be good stewards of all of this data, of all of this information, because we, we can have all of the data in the world, but if we're not interpreting it appropriately or correctly, then it can lead to a lot of um, kind of false conclusions. Right, and, and uh, in the healthcare world, genetic counselors are really here to help distill down this information to make it as useful as possible for the patients and, and for the people we're taking care of. I think it's really important when you're talking about um, all this complex data because the um, the difficulty of managing complex data versus the opportunity for us to put all this complex data and then have a genetic counselor be able to have access um, to um, complex data that has been um, curated um, allows us to care for our patients and to interpret the data. So can you talk a little bit about how you see I know we hear a lot in the news lately um, about AI technology and how artificial intelligence ultimately is a very scary thing and um, may be the ruin of society. So I think we hear a lot of scary things about um, artificial intelligence these days. But when you talk about big data and you talk about the relationship of, that genetic counselors have with um, AI technology, it doesn't seem so scary to me because we need this support. We need this kind of machine learning support. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely, yeah. So if I, as an individual person, was trying to read through even just one person's genome and just understand all of that information, it would take me years to do that, just to read through it, right? So uh, we need complex machine learning to be able to make those high level comparisons and be able to really process all of this data that we're getting. That's how we've been able to leverage these tools and um, really make the information that we can get meaningful and impactful without, you know, what we call AI or complex machine learning. That would be extremely difficult to do and and the the strong point of complex learning is that it's able to process a lot of data and find meaningful patterns within that data and then i as a person can look at what those machines have processed and spit out and summarized for me and use you know my higher level 
like putting all the puzzle pieces together um, to use that towards, okay, how do we actually use this information to impact, you know, Jane Doe sitting in front of me? How do, how, how do I use that information to take better care of my patient? So um, the way I really see AI is it's, it's helping us gather all of the puzzle pieces and helping us, uh, you know, put together parts of the puzzle um, so I don't have to do everything all by myself. And it's not really, um, this is not really the future. This is the current state, really, yeah. of how we relate to um, machine learning um, because we need it. Um, okay. The amount of data in the human genome. And when you think about, uh, for research purposes, if you really want to understand what something means, you need a lot of people to be participating. And so if you have a lot of people um, especially people who might have a similar background or a similar diagnosis. Um, you need um, a lot of data. So it's not just one person, right? It can be times, you know, 10,000 people. And that's where it just becomes so much more powerful, but really impossible to do without some kind of artificial intelligence to help us weed through what all this data really means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when you think also about how do we use AI technology today, um, the other thing that comes to my mind is using chatbots to reach out to large populations of people. So we really would like it if everyone in our communities um, are able to um, use a, a simple questionnaire in order to assess risk, in order to assess the risk that they may have um, some kind of inherited predisposition. Um, maybe they um, have a likelihood of developing breast cancer in their lifetime and we can calculate that risk. Or they might have a lifetime risk of um, developing some other disorder and we could calculate that risk. Um, or they could meet um, standard criteria to do genetic testing so that we can give them more information about what their family history means when interpreted in the context of having genetic test results. And so we do that now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's such a testament to Providence really having that insight to put these programs in place and allow us um, to use our expertise to develop how can we leverage these technologies to take better care of our communities. And um, again, there's a whole other podcast yes. on, on the cool stuff we're doing now um, at Providence and, and how we're, we're using these technologies to, to sure take care of people but I think you you highlight another important point which is we have all these tools and all of these cool things to be able to get so much data but we also still lean very heavily on just talking to a patient talking to to a person about what is your family history what is your personal history and it's really about gluing those things together right we we know a lot about genetics but it knowing every single letter in a person's genome is still not going to tell us the whole picture. We exactly. still have to put it together with, you know, a face-to-face -face conversation with that person. Yeah, and we can reach out to populations. Um, and we do talk about this in another one of our podcasts about our care program in mammography and mm -hmm. how we're growing that to endoscopy. 
And so we can reach out to our patients and ask them questions about their personal and family history using a chatbot. And that increases our ability to really personalize their care, which is kind of funny because it seems almost impersonal to send them <laughs> a chatbot, you know, basically a robot asking them questions, but we designed the questions, right? And we um, designed our responses to the answers. And so mm -hmm. we created the algorithm that helps us to flag or identify those patients. But no yeah. matter how good it is to send out um, a kind of an impersonal robot asking question, it is the way that we can personalize or more effectively personalize and identify patients. But you're right, it's not compared at all to sitting down with a person, um, a genetic counselor, somebody who, who um, really has genetic wisdom um, to sit down and go over what are all those responses and what other questions um, would we ask or what other kind of detail would help be helpful for us to really understand more accurately what that patient's genetic risk assessment would tell us more than the chatbot ever could report back to us. But the chatbot um, is something that allows us to be efficient and reach out in a personalized way to every single patient um, that we can send it to. Um, so I think it's an important development in technology and I'm hoping that we um, you know, continue to use and develop it as one of our main tools of being able to reach out to huge communities of, of people and being able to um, uh, give them information, um, right. give them education, information, ask questions, um, so that it's uh, basically an important interface um, that is technology driven, but um, ultimately is has that human connection behind right. and it. has a real person sitting. Behind, yes, a real person is that. sitting here behind it. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other thing I think um, that is really important about AI technology is um, to think about when we use tools or when we develop tests, in order for us to understand what the interpretation of that test is, we need um, this kind of machine learning to help us to understand what does that information actually mean when you collate it with large, um, large data. Um, so like a good example of that is um, in the future, I believe uh, in the near future, we will be replacing colonoscopies with a blood draw. And um, the important thing about a colonoscopy is that you want to make sure that you are identifying um, polyps in the colon before they become cancer. So you wanna identify things at kind of a stage zero um, at, or even less, right? Um, at just a polyp stage. So it's just a matter of taking out the polyp. But what if you had a blood test that could tell you whether or not you even had any polyps? A blood test that could tell you if you had any polyps would then indicate that you actually needed to have a colonoscopy. Whereas right now you have a colonoscopy to see if you have any polyps and then it's too late, you've already had it, you know? And so at that point, if you don't have any polyps, then maybe you didn't even need the colonoscopy, but you needed the colonoscopy to see if you had polyps. So being able to use AI technology to understand what are those um, markers in that blood draw that can really tell us more about the kind of precancerous processes that are happening in a human body. And then we can do the preventive services that are needed to prevent a cancer from developing. Right, and another really cool thing that I'm really excited about coming in the next few years is something called polygenic risk score. Whereas uh, historically we've always been 
um, focused on, you know, these single genes or single mutations that have a huge impact on whether or not somebody has disease. So, so an example in cancer genetics are like the, the BRCA one and two genes, bracket genes, um, where if someone has a mutation, they automatically have a much, much higher risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer, for example. But polygenic risk scores, um, we know have existed, or polygenic risk has existed for a really long time, whereas um, most people don't have one of these very strong, what we call monogenic or, or single impact gene mutations. They might have a combination of genes that um, by themselves don't really cause an issue, but when we're seeing like maybe they have 20 different thing, different um, genetic factors that uh, when added together might cause some kind of risk. Um, and that's really the explanation for this person's disease or this family's disease. It's not just one single mutation, one single answer. Um, newer technology and, and all of this data and research has really allowed us to be able to look at what is a polygenic risk. How do we add up many, many, many different points of uh, genetic risks that um, impact this person? And can we compare them overall and kind of segregate out people who are at average risk versus higher risk or maybe even lower risk. Maybe they have uh, genetic factors that are protective for them against disease. And uh, I think polygenic risk score is going to be a really big deal in uh, cardiology genetics and understanding like who is more at risk for um, heart attacks from like uh, cholesterol blockages in the heart because maybe they have a lot of different factors that cause them to have more cholesterol plaques or maybe they're at much lower risk because they they somehow have genetic factors that protect them against their um, their arteries forming these these blockages or plaques and polygenic risk score I think is is the next thing I'm waiting for to to hit prime time and it, it's going to be a really exciting thing to see. Can you um, just talk a little bit about the difference between having a single gene deleterious mutation and the nuance of if you don't have, like if your test results are negative, like you don't have a mutation in one of our genetic panels. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the nuance of what polygenic risk scores really are and how they're based on human variation? Currently, if people test negative on one of these gene panels looking for, for a single gene mutation, it doesn't mean that that person is never going to get cancer or whatever inherited condition we're testing for. Um, it just tells us that we haven't found the, the cause in that person, but it could be uh, due to those polygenic risks that we're still um, kind of developing our understanding about. And this understanding is still heavily based off our reference genome or the kind of pool of data that we have to compare to right now. And a big limitation uh, to, to that database is that historically it's been 
uh, underrepresented from people of especially minority ethnicities uh, because a lot of these references came out of um, kind of research um, in institutions where most of the people part participating were of like one origin or, or in one country. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot more um, equity in more studies being done now trying to broaden the ethnic representation of our human genome and sure. those studies are ongoing right now but i think it's it's still going to be about five ten years away before we see that really pay off and i know that what we've been talking about now um is what we see today and what we see coming in the next Maybe, you know, one to five years from now, within five years, we see that um, technology and polygenic risk scores um, and new tests uh, and, and the ability to understand those um, test results is going to advance um, incredibly. And we are really, I think we both agree that we are so lucky to work at Providence, to work at a place that allows us to stay at the forefront of delivering personalized medicine. Um, I think in, in kind of getting to uh, our closing of this, um, uh, this series, um, I'd really like to talk about, you know, what are the kind of advancements that we see coming that are further off? Um, so what do we see happening maybe in 10 to 20 years from now? Yeah, and, and I think um, we've talked a lot about just being able to use that data and being able to use that data to represent a, a wider group of people. Um, I'm wondering what, what you may be excited about seeing in the next few years or, you know, in the next decade or two. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, because cancer itself um, is very um, individual. Each cancer has gone through a specific um, journey or its own individual journey to become a um, malignancy and to behave um, in the way that it's behaving and to utilize the mutations that it's um, incurred um, to hurt the body, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a lot we need to do to understand um, how we can fight cancer more directly using genetic tools, basically, to fight cancer because all cancers are not inherited but all cancers are genetic at their core because those cells are um, developing mutations that cause the disruption of behavior um, in those cells. So I think what I always hope for is that we will cure cancer because of our understanding of the genetics uh, and the way that cancer progresses. I really hope that in 10 to 20 years, we'll be at the forefront of curing cancer and we'll be able to potentially fight cancer, um, identify it at very early stages. Maybe we'll identify cancers, um, you know, before they start and we'll be able to, you know, send in some kind of vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, like a smart vaccine, or we'll be able to develop a, um, a virus um, that is, um, you know, the bad parts of the virus can get cut off and then the virus can be programmed to deliver, deliver kind of a smart bomb, um, telling those cells, like deliver it right into mm -hmm. a precancer and tell those cells, hey, you're bad cells, you need to die off. And so in that way, we could potentially cure cancer. Um, and so I feel that way about a lot of diseases, that mm -hmm. there, 
you know, whether we use um, what people might be more familiar with, like CRISPR technology, right. that we could deliver CRISPR editing to um, individual cells or individual bodies to cure their disease um, or to fight off a disease that is um, to stop it from progressing, I think is a real a real possibility. In yeah, the absolutely. I used to, you know, or tell people that, you know, we can identify mutations with genetic testing, but we can't really fix them. Right. That <laughs> right. very likely could uh, not be true anymore. It, you know, two decades from now, there, there could be, like you said, that CRISPR editing, we can just cut out a mutation and put the right right instruction back in there and and you know really prevent or cure a lot of these conditions there's even um gene therapy treatments right now being researched in the realm of of cardiac inherited cardiac disease where if we can identify people who have really specific gene mutations they're developing drugs that can um kind of substitute the the um, mutation might not be making what the body needs to function. So can we deliver some kind of um, drug or in injection that substitutes these proteins for the body if, if we can't make it ourselves? So I think that is something really, really exciting to, to look forward. Like in my lifetime, I think it's very likely that um, people are going to you know, easily get their whole whole genome sequenced mm -hmm. um, in a very accessible and uh, rapid way. And then the the flip side of that is we have all of these you know dystopian media things warning us about you know what what happens when uh, we sometimes play with with these things in not a responsible way, right? Like one of my favorite genetics movies is Gattaca. One, because the actors are great in, in all of their roles, but Gattaca really shows us, um, you know, the flip side of, of how this information um, could just impact society. And I think that is true. Um, that that genetics and in the future, there's there's just so much potential there, and and there's a lot to hope for, um, on the you know other end of the spectrum. There's also things to to you know be careful about. So I'm I'm glad that um, as a society we have agreed, and and there's like you know scientific panels that come together and make ethical policies for how to do genetics research and and have those safeguards in place. Um, I think that's true. I think, you know, we have to have reservations. Mm -hmm. Science fiction as an art form is oftentimes a warning um, to us to be careful about how we use technology. And I love Gattaca. It's one of my favorite movies. It's like <laughs> a must-see for all genetics, um, people interested in genetics. Agreed, yeah. Um, and my favorite book is probably, on this topic, is probably Ender's Game. Um, because in Ender's oh, Game, all children yeah. are sequenced at birth, and then they're kind of given an assignment based on their abilities. 
based on their genetic abilities that, of course, are determined at their birth. <laughs> um, and so it's a great book. And I think they made a movie out of it, but I think the book was better to read. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like this is an important area um, to be able to use um, um, art, media, um, and also the real um, interest of geneticists who know that there are um, you know, important ethical considerations and how we move forward with our technology and our right. understanding of genetics and how to best utilize it, utilize it to um, ease suffering and to benefit society rather than to cause, you know, um, some of these dystopian um, consequences. <laughs> I feel like if we know about the dystopian consequences, we can work um, as a society to make smarter choices about how to exactly. utilize our technology and our, and yeah. our knowledge. Yeah. Um, so, so that I, would be our hope, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't think it's anything to be scared of. I think um, just, you know, to, to have both sides of the coin in mind, mm -hmm. right? But I think this, um, there's, let's dream big. Let's, let's think of all the things, you know, let's really do everything we can with, with genetics. And, and I can't wait to see where it goes in the future. I agree. Uh, I think we need to to close because we've um, been talking for a while. <laughs> but, you know, if you were to say, considering the future, I know we've been talking about the future a lot, but yeah. um, what do you feel like you're the most excited, excited about? Um, where do you really hope you get to see your field going next? I'm just really excited by the increasing accessibility um, of genetics, not only for, you know, a specific portion of people who who can afford it or, or who are able to navigate the healthcare system in a way that, um, you know, gets them access to, to genetic testing. But I just am really looking forward to the, um, you know, democratizing genetics and, and making it accessible to everyone. Um, and really improving our understanding of how we use this data uh, so so it benefits you know a wider range of people and then um, you know a person can just go in and, and talk to um, their doctor and really uh, continue advocating for themselves because there's there's more education and accessibility about genetics and I think that's only going to continue to improve. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, when I was working as a um, research, a student researcher uh, in a zebrafish lab, and um, the primary investigator of that lab had asked me to stay on as the la in the lab and become a PhD student, I said, I don't think that's for me. I don't want mm -hmm. to um, just, you know, uh, basically a lot of the time it was looking at fluorescent markers um, under a microscope that we had uh, been working on to understand eye and ear development as a model in zebrafish. And it was so interesting. Like it was, it was mind-blowingly interesting. But I felt like there was this whole world out there of the average person that didn't know at all mm -hmm. what we were doing exactly. or what we were able to do and what we were yeah. able to understand and how it might impact them personally. Um, and so when I told the, um, the PI at the um, laboratory that I didn't see myself as a um, research scientist, that 
my passion would really be in being able to share information about genetics to help people. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, you want to be a genetic counselor. And that was the first time I'd even heard that genetic counseling was a career path that mm -hmm. even existed. And so I was just struck by him saying that. And I realized it just fit for me. Um, so what I really um, am the most excited about the future is still that it's still um, increasing the genetic fluency and the um, access to genetics to everyone mm -hmm. and having it be meaningful. So increasing the diversity, the representation within our research is really important. Being able to have a reference genome that includes a wide range of diverse um, uh, pres uh, uh, you know, uh, presentation so that we can um, better uh, represent and, and, and interpret what those genetic test results mean um, and growing the, the role of genetic counselors to really sit at every table in healthcare Absolutely. because every table at healthcare needs the voice of a geneticist to, to let that program or that programmatic development or that delivery of healthcare um, really understand that genetics is a part um, of everything and that all patients um, and all walks of life, all communities should have access and better fluency, better understanding of um, the ability and the, the promise that understanding more about your family history, your genetic background, um, and how to reduce those risks, um, how to um, uh, expect um, risks and how to face them head on by reducing them and preventing um, disease from occurring for you and your family is the real promise of the future of genetics. Absolutely. And I, I don't think we can end on a better note. So I um, am just so, so excited to, to see uh, how genetics continues to be such a driving force and impactful for society. Me too. It was great to talk with you today, Carol. Great to talk with you, Sandy. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. I hope you have enjoyed our genetics podcast series. We look forward to continuing the important conversation of health and wellness with more experts in future podcasts, episodes from Providence. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs and services, go to Providence.org. And please remember, the information that we provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. And thanks for listening. Remember, at Providence, we see, we see the, life the life in you. In you.